A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering data-driven value at scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Dave Coles, the Director of Data and AI at ThoughtWorks Australia. I'd invited Dave on due to a few pieces of content, including a webinar on fitness functions he had done with Jamac in 2021. Key takeaways and thoughts and and maybe some remaining questions that I, I have after this conversation. Number one, Fitness functions are a very useful tool to assess questions of progress slash success at a granular and easy to answer scale level. Those answers can then be summed up into a greater big picture. You should start with fitness functions early in your data mesh journey so you can measure your progress along the way. To develop your fitness functions, ask, what does good look like? Number two, Focus your fitness functions on measuring things that you will act on or are important to measuring success. Something like the amount of data processed is probably a vanity metric. Drive towards value-based measurements instead. Number three, your fitness functions may lose relevance, and that is okay. You should be measuring how well you are doing overall not locking on to measuring the same thing every X time period. What helps you assess your success? Again, measure the things you will act on. Otherwise, it's just metrics. Number four, Dave believes the reason to create or the genesis of a mesh data product should be a specific use case. The data product can evolve to serve multiple consumers, but to start, You should not create data products unless you know how it will, or maybe likely will, be consumed and have at least one consumer lined up. Number five, team topologies can be an effective approach to implementing data mesh. Using the team topologies approach, the enablement team should focus on simultaneously, one, speeding the time to value of the specific stream aligned teams they are collaborating with, and two, Look for reusable patterns and implementation details to add to the platform to make future data product creation and management easier. That's a little bit confusing about the team topology specific terminology. Just listen to the episode or, or, or search around for some team topologies information. Number six, we still don't have a great approach to evolving our data products to keep our analytical plane in sync with the kind of quote unquote the changing reality 
of the actual domain on the operating plane. On the one hand, we want to maintain a picture of reality, what's actually going on. On the other, data product evolution can cause issues for data consumers. So we must balance that reflecting a fast-changing reality with data consumer disruption, including downstream and cross-data product interoperability. You know, if all of a sudden the way that you're reflecting the information of the domain changes, is that going to break your interoperability as well? There aren't great patterns for how to do any of this just yet. It's it's a challenge that we need to, to as a community, come together and really share some information and figure out. And lastly, number seven, there is a trade-off to consider regarding mesh data product size. The smaller the data product, the less scope it has, which makes it easier to develop and maintain. But smaller scope data products will increase the total number of data products, likely leading to potentially harder data discovery. And do we have data product owners with many data products in their portfolios? Again, I think this is a question that we as a community really need to share information on, and there probably isn't a specific answer, but it's something to be aware of. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Dave Coles here, who is the Director of Data and AI for ThoughtWorks Australia. And yes, this is the uh, third or fourth person that's the uh, Director of Data and AI at uh, one of the ThoughtWorks things on the on the podcast. So um, I reached out to Dave specifically because uh, he had done a webinar uh, way back when, I, I want to say like August or so of last year with Jamak about fitness functions. And fitness functions is a really interesting concept that I'm not that familiar with. Um, so I'll let him kind of give the introduction, but it is a good way of measuring kind of <laughs> your progress. How well are you doing? And, and is that the progress for your implementation? Is it the progress or the, the value that you're adding from a single data product? All of these things. I think it's a good way to think about approaching those questions and having a, um, instead of a, a, a qualitative, you have a bit more of a quantitative type approach. You're still going to have a qualitative answer, but um, that you've got a little bit more rigor in, in how you do that. And then a whole lot of other uh, conversational topics about data mesh and kind of data and related uh, topics. So very excited to kind of jump into that. Dave, if you don't mind, could you give people a little bit of a background to yourself and then we can kind of jump into the conversation at hand? Hi, Scott, and thank you for having me on today. Um, my current role uh, is uh, similar to some of your other guests, uh, a director of data and AI at one of our ThoughtWorks countries. Um, I've been at ThoughtWorks about 11 years now um, in various roles as well across technical and, and organizational change. Um, and prior to ThoughtWorks, my background uh, was robotics engineering and uh, CAD and simulation software in small R&D teams. Uh, so I guess I came from a, a perspective of making complex decisions easy for users and finding new ways to measure things. And so that's uh, that was one of the lenses I brought to talking about fitness functions for data mesh. Um, because the, uh, the the reason I suggested to Jamak we, we give this talk was to sort of shift the conversation around data mesh away from what do we need to build uh, and towards what does good look like uh, and how do we know we're improving towards that and what do we need to measure in order to have uh, to be able to answer those questions, and I think that in the world uh, of, of centralized data, um, one of the challenges that, one of the challenges is that often 
we were working with vanity measures, um, e.g. what volume of data is on the platform, um, rather than actually connecting that value through to, to value delivered uh, to consumers, um, though, though it might be described as a data asset in that case. Um, you might also argue that it's simply data inventory. Uh, it's data waiting around to be transformed into a useful product. Um, and, you know, from multiple perspectives, uh, we seek to reduce inventory uh, because we know that it, represent, it represents a form of waste uh, from a lean and even from an accounting perspective as well. Um, and so talking about how we might measure data mesh differently was was great to create space for a different type of conversation. I think it transitions well into good conversations with other people as well of, of that there is, because exactly what you said, so many people are like, how do I do this? How do I do this? Okay, give me the roadmap versus, hey, we're going to give you the kind of some things that you should really think about and what are some questions you should uh, be asking and answering. And we're going to give you a framework for measuring that, but that it, it can pull them out of that. You need to tell me exactly what to do because the whole point of data mesh is, well, you know, initially, even if you look at Jamak's um, early talks, not, not you know, people always re uh, refer to the Martin Fowler site posts. And I'm like, you should watch some of the early talks because she it's, it's all stalking horse, right? It's all, hey, I think this could work. Let's talk about it. And it's evolved. And we need to have those conversations about we need to have flexible approaches and that we need to make it so that it is adaptable for people's organizations, but we can't pre-adapt it. We can't say, and here, you know, it's it's like, um, what what are all the possible uh, permutations of a hundred, you know, thousand word book? Like the math just doesn't exist, right? You can't, you can't think of that. In, I mean, maybe that is a potential map, but it's just not the way that the world works. It's not feasible. It's not reasonable. So I, I love that approach and that, that conversational thinking. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, even if, you know, the thought experiment that we had a, a perfect data mesh for an organization at a point in time, we, we know that that wouldn't be static and that it would need to continue to evolve. Um, and of course, every, every organization is a bit different uh, in terms of its, uh, the, its market, in terms of its technology estate, uh, in terms of the capabilities and, and strategic direction. So, there's, yeah, there's certainly no one-size-fits-all and there's no static answer to, to what is data mesh. Um, and I think that's exactly the... Uh, in, in, and so, you know, the fitness function was introduced in software architecture in the, uh, the book Building Evolutionary Architectures uh, by Neil Ford, Rebecca Parsons and Patrick Qua. And uh, the, the concept... Uh, you know, it's it's a concept that's existed in sort of mathematical optimization uh, for a while. So it's a and in that uh, context, it's a, it's a function that tells you how good a solution is. Uh, and so this can be used to to drive a whole range of optimization techniques like evolutionary algorithms. Um, and so you know that that's quite a like a, a formalized version. But in software architecture, you know, we try to strike the balance between creating a shared understanding um, as a focus for a conversation um, and alignment across a, uh, an organization and that quantitative side of can we measure and can we track how we're improving. And, yeah, and you talked about kind of the vanity metrics versus like let's have a conversation about value, right? Like that's why are we doing this, right? The, the number of times that I have conversations with people where they're saying, um, you know, not on the podcast, but when people are are like coming to me and asking me questions, it's so much of, well, but why are you trying to do it that? Like, what what is that going to achieve, right? It, it's uh, you know, um, I saw somebody who who I, I think it was Forbes, and I I think that um, Forbes did a a poor job of summarizing their article, but they said it's never too early to build for scale. I'm like. Yes, it is. <laughs> Why would you do that? Why? Yes, you want to build so you can change for scale. But if you prematurely optimize, you're spending so much time and opportunity cost and all of that. So, um, but you, so you, you gave a little bit of an intro to a fitness function. But let's let's drill down into a little bit of like 
can you give a specific example or, or cause it like, even on the, um, webinar, it was still a little bit of kind of this v- vague thing to me of what exactly a fitness function might be. So like, can you give a little bit more of a, a really concrete example to help people or maybe two or three concrete examples to help people really understand what we're trying to, you know, are we trying to say we're, we're measuring it on this one SLA or SLO? Are we trying to like, what is it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, great, great question. Um, and you know, it will it will vary a bit context by context, and um, and, and again, the, like the, the conversation uh, as you you know talked about that, why are we doing this? You know, it might be it might be divergent. We might look at a whole range of different different reasons why we might be doing something, and the discussion around fitness functions and and then how we might measure that we were being successful can help us bring in uh, converge on a on a shared understanding of that, you know, oh, I thought we were going to measure it this way. No, this is this is how we measure it and this is how we know what good looks like. Um, but, but in terms of a, a concrete example, so data products have, uh, you know, a number of characteristics. Uh, they're supposed to be self-describable, addressable and, and discoverable and so on. And so what we might do is uh, in the life cycle of a data product, um, uh, it's through the build phase, we might have uh, we might have um, tests at various levels in in the build and deployment pipeline uh, that that uh, assert uh, that that uh, the characteristics of a data product are met, um, and then we might continue to to monitor that those characteristics of a of a data product are met uh, in production in in the run phase of the life cycle, and so that uh, you know that could be as simple as a, as a health check that. Uh, you know, we're able to discover some uh, self-describing information about the data product at its address uh, when it's running. And so that, that would be a really concrete example of a fitness function. And that would be a, a true-false for one data product. Uh, but then as you start to roll that up across the mesh, uh, then you might get a more granular view. Uh, and uh, satisfaction of SLOs. So there would be, you know, satisfaction of those uh, fundamental data product characteristics, but then product by product, each uh, each product would define its own SLOs around latency, uh, quality, completeness, and and so on. Uh, and so another fitness function might be uh, other data products meeting their own S- their own defined SLOs. Uh, so again, you know this could be binary at a single product, but you could roll it up across the whole mesh to get a picture of of how well the mesh is performing in that regard. And do you typically find that fitness functions are better with binary answers of yes, no, or is it that you, you know, because when you have that, okay, um, what, what is our latency? Okay. Our P99 is 40 milliseconds. Okay. Is that good? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And yeah, and and this is where the, yeah, the conversation becomes important and uh, you might actually have a range of, like you might have a range of measures as well that help you triangulate on what's good because, uh, you know, it's always possible to game a single measure. And, you know, that's that's the last thing we want, that a fitness function or a, or a measure that's guiding our direction becomes a target to aim for instead. Um, and so, yeah, you, you might certainly, you know, when it comes down to a kind of adapting or extending a unit testing approach into, into fitness functions, it helps to have something that passes or fails. Uh, but, uh, you know, when you start talking about P99, that might be a, a statistical assessment uh, or an or a assessment across aggregated data, whether it meets or fails some criterion. Um, so I think that uh, you can, but um, to, to, yeah, you can also consider, uh, you know, continuous uh, fitness functions uh, as well. Um, so, you know, when, when you start to have a whole lot of binary decisions, for instance, at individual product level, you start to get a, a measure across the whole mesh about proportion of compliance, uh, for instance. If I'm trying to measure, are we doing well or, or things like that, that can be a very qualitative thing. Is it that you recommend that, that people have kind of those roll-up metrics that are quantitative and that you have that, like, if you were to, to walk into an organ, because to me, it's, it's like, okay, I guess I can just ask 8,000 questions and then I just get 8,000 answers and 
do I still know if this is good or bad? Like, is it that you start to, to think about what should my benchmark be or what? Like, how do you go from the concept of a fitness function to actually measuring are we doing well with yeah. our implementation? Are we doing well with our long-term vision? And are we doing well with where we are now? Because no, we're not at all at our long-term vision. We might be at 10% coverage of our long-term vision, you know, like a number of domains that have rolled out a quality data product. And we're at 10%. That could be good. You could be in, in month, you know, three, four, five, and you're like, that's a really, really good, like, you know, level of progress, but like, how do you take that, the concept and actually go into an organization and go, we're going to start doing these and and we're going to, instead of just kind of having qualitative random things, we're going to start to actually quantify and, and say, are we doing what we think we need to be doing? Yeah. Yeah. Look, great question. I think the examples I gave were quite bottom up, roll up, but I think you definitely also start from the, the top-down perspective, um, discussing what you're trying to achieve. And so in, the, in that regard, you know, data mesh needs to plug into the organisational strategy primarily, uh, and we need to be able to demonstrate a link uh, from organisational strategy top-down, decomposing the strategy into and a, and a technique we've used there is the lean value tree um, from, the, from the edge approach uh, and decomposing that down. Into a, into a portfolio of bets that, that data products uh, can support. But from a perspective of implementing a data mesh uh, and like the top down, we would look at each of the principles and around domain ownership. You know, what we want to be able to measure is, are we reducing the interdependence of domains? So in some way, can we, can we pull out some metrics that show that uh, domains are autonomous um, while, while remaining aligned uh, to uh, to, to an overall vision. Uh, in the product space, the, the key question we're asking is, are we delivering value uh, from, from data, not just accumulating inventory? Um, in, the, in the platform space, what we're asking is, can we abstract complexity effectively? Uh, and you know, can we see an impact on, on teams' ability to deliver and operate their data products as a result? Uh, and then I think in the governance space, which you know we were talking about before is, is evolving and we're trying to understand what good looks like. Uh, what we're trying to measure is, is, is the whole greater than the sum of the parts um, because from a domain and a product perspective, you know, we're trying to ensure that the parts remain in, uh, in, independent to a degree and, and they're delivering value uh, in, in a way that's independent of each other. Uh, but the governance is, you know, when we, when we put those together, uh, do we have something that's greater than the, the sum of the parts as a result? Yeah, I've been, I, I've kind of shelved it, but I might bring it back out of the SCAE, which is Scott's confusing ass equation, which is like each data product itself in and of itself should have value. Jamak has said that, right? You don't just have ones that have no value in and of themselves, because then, then that really isn't, that has interdependence, right? If hmm. the value has to be dependent on something else. But when you start to think about the value of the overall data mesh, it isn't just the data products, because then you've got kind of value silos. If you have that greater whole, that that greater um, thing of, of interoperability, and, you know, is that literally only the data interoperability, or is it the informational oper interoperability, so people can know what the connections are, and you may not even be able to interoperate the, the data products, but like, how do you start to think about where each data product the value that it might bring, you know, at the beginning is is one and the interoperability is point one. But, you know, by the time you get to 50 data products, it's bringing an in incremental value of one for each data product and it's bringing an interoperability value of one. And then you get to a thousand or whatever. And it's like the incremental value of the data product is one and the interoperability is 10, right? And so yeah. like, that's where like, where is that tipping point? And, and you, you know, with uh, Samia uh, Raman, who was on, she, she talked about the ability to kind of iterate towards interoperability and things like that. And I think that could be an interesting aspect as well to, to kind of measure how much interoperability do we have or how well, you know, 
a couple of people have come on and, and they really, really hate uh, net promoter score, but that can be another thing to at least get your arms around like what what's going on with data products or with domains or things like that, that I think it can give you a little bit of, of guidance toward this. But it sounds like what you're saying is, is kind of the same thing that um, when people have asked me, how do I get started with data mesh? It's like, let's get concrete. Let's drill down instead of let's try and answer this in all one fell swoop. Yes, yes. And, and, and you know, compartmentalize the, the complexity of data mesh in that regard. So, uh, yeah, yeah that we exactly those, those points uh, that I ran through that we're reducing interdependence, that we're delivering value, um, abstracting complexity and delivering a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts. It's kind of like data products when you think about them, right? Like yes. they, they, they interoperate in to give you a bigger picture of yes, yes. how you're doing. Yeah, and I think ultimately from that product perspective, it comes down to consumption. You know, are we, uh, are consumers, as a, you know, as a proxy for, for value, um, are consumers, uh, you know, are we seeing consumption of the data products in, in the mesh and, and what patterns of consumption are we seeing? Uh, and in, like in terms of a fitness function, you know, what, what's good? Um, we'll think about rates and ratios over time. So is it growing in this area that's aligned to the strategy of the business? Um, are, yeah, you know, net promoter score has its promoters and its detractors. Uh, but, you know, it might be uh, it might be better to have like some sort of feedback signal than, than no signal at all. Um, and so, you know, there's not necessarily, again, that the answer of which fitness functions to use is not a static answer either. So it depends a little bit. It depends a bit on, you know, how how you can actually respond to these fitness functions as an organisation and, and do things differently as a result. Because if you're not actually connecting them through to action, um, then they're not they're not necessarily helpful measures. Um, you, you can also look at the. You can also look at the. Um, uh, we also think about sort of three stages of measures as well and bringing a lot of thinking over from the practical test pyramid um, you know, which uh, you know recognizes that um, or, you know, or uh, makes a case that there's uh, like a, a portfolio of tests at different levels um, of, a, of a system and gives you the most economical way of getting feedback on its quality um, and so you might have a, a large number of cheap tests uh, at the unit test level um, which give you a very granular view, um, and you might have a small number of more extensive, uh, more expensive tests at a, at a behavioural level, um, which which give you an overall view. And of course, you can translate this into the monitoring space as well. Um, and then, sort of taking that thinking into data mesh, we might have a lot of granular tests around data quality uh, and around the service of data products. Um, then we might have uh, some tests around. Uh, you know what uh, leading leading measures or leading metrics around uh, you know are we following good act, uh, good process um, what and when we model our data you know how well does the modeling process work so this might be a measure of a, an ml model uh, you know it assumes given some data it, it produces some level of performance but you know that's that's hard to separate in reality from the data quality uh, going into the model but we can assess the performance of the model um, separately to that and then we might also look at the business outcomes that follow, uh, starting with good data, uh, following good practice, and then as a result, uh, we might look at the business outcomes as more lagging but outcome-oriented measures. Yeah, and I think um, I want to say it was Katie Bauer who said, um, measure things that you're going to have a reaction to, that you're going to act upon. So like, you know, oh, well, here's our test coverage number. Okay, but what are we going to do with that like or, or is this it's good to to know but are we going to actually push that if we get a, a number that's not where we want it to be yes yes and so yeah so i think you can feel free to to prune measures that aren't connected to action um, or, or review whether you, you could get more out of uh closing that feedback loop and so um one concept that i haven't covered a lot with and we talked about in our in our pre-call that I think is really uh, useful is 
kind of the wrapping in team topologies and the concept of the enabling team. Um, you know, can you give people a little bit of background on it? Anytime I've tried to explain team topologies, I'm just like, it's just, you bring in people and they really help and it makes it so that, that people can, can actually do their job, but like that they learn how to do the stuff that they're going to have to keep managing, but the one-off they don't have to do. And then blah. And it's just like, I, I just can't explain it at all. So like, I would love to, to hear about, the the concepts within team topologies and how you're seeing that be effective when you're you're looking at a data mesh implementation. Yeah, I, I, thanks. I think the um, t- yeah team topologies is a good framework um, for uh, I guess the architecture of of the organization and the communication patterns and responsibilities within teams and then and then between teams. Um, and it, I think it's quite complementary to the, the technical architecture of data mesh in that regard. You know, being a being a socio-technical uh, approach as it's described. Um, you know, there is a, a technical architecture, but there's a like there's a team architecture or an operating model uh, that goes along very closely with that. And so, team topologies uh, gives us a way to design those teams uh, that are sympathetic to a data mesh architecture, and you know, and very. Um, you know, mutually complementary and, and mutually beneficial. Um, in some respects, following following the principle of Conway's law that uh, that states that uh, you know an organisational system architecture is going to reflect the communication patterns uh, in its teams. Uh, it's possible to do so called inverse Conway maneuver and design teams in the way that you would like to see the system architecture emerge. And so, what Team Topologies does is, you know, similar to Data Mesh, um, it uh, introduces some sort of fundamental building blocks that can then be put together in, in more complex ways. Uh, so, the, the basic unit of value delivery, like like a data product, I guess, is a stream aligned team in uh, in uh, Team Topologies. So, you know, we would you know we would see an affinity between stream aligned teams. Uh, and data products, a streamlined team delivering a data product uh, in a in a, a mature data mesh environment. But there are obviously going to be a number of transitional phases uh, along the way. And so, and so, a streamlined team is has uh, some end to end capability and responsibility responsibility for delivering some sort of value stream within the organisation. And so, they're the sort of primary unit of value delivery, like data products are. But they need to be supported by a wider team architecture as well, and so you know, in, in a in a mature environment, that the way that can happen is through a platform team, uh, and so a platform team you know, would again have some affinity with the self service data platform in a in a data mesh technical architecture, uh, and that platform team would interact with the stream team in a mode that Team Topologies describes as as a service, and so this might be through an automated API. Uh, a stream aligned team can uh, self serve resources, data, computation, uh, w- whatever it needs uh, through uh, through the interface, the API interface, uh, as defined by the platform team. And so, this platform team then doesn't there's uh, there's no blocking of work that the stream aligned team is doing because the value of the stream aligned team is that they they have end to end control over their work and thus can can work in very short cycles um, and, and incorporate feedback from their product delivery in, in, into, the, uh, into the design of the product and implementation of the product. And, and the reason why that non-blocking is so important, um, a number of years ago, uh, I was in one of my organisational transformation roles working uh, on an agile transformation with a large telco in Australia. And uh, we discovered that, it, you know, it's not quite the level of rigor of the, the DORA team and the Accelerate metrics, but we discovered that work going outside of a team would typically take 12 times as long to complete as work that stayed within a team in that environment. And so the effect of relying on another team um, for your for delivery that, that you're supposed to own um, uh, becomes yeah, quite a heavy cost uh, for these streamlined teams. So you have streamlined teams supported by so supported by platform teams so that you know they can they can deliver value, and then into the mix you add um, the concept of, of an enabling team um, because 
a streamlined team now has uh, a lot of different concerns that it needs to cover over the evolution of the kind of organizational digital playbook. We've seen more and more concerns uh, layered into streamlined teams, starting with product management and, and user experience design. Uh, DevOps, uh, security, infra, uh, potentially ML. And so you have these enormous portmanteaus of DevSec, infra, ML, ops, uh, responsibilities for a team. And so, so into that, into that world, the enabling team comes to help, uh, to help the team, to help a streamlined team, uh, make the most, uh, make the most, um, of those individual capabilities and to provide a, a ramp, uh, onto consuming those capabilities. And so uh, this can, yeah, this can be sort of an enabling team might be more specialised to those functional um, capabilities and might work with a streamlined team uh, for some time uh, to, to bring them up to speed, but, but, but not on a permanent basis. And the idea is to embed that in the team and then, uh, and then add to that, I guess, the notion of a complex, a complicated subsystem team, which is you know, when one of these capabilities becomes too much to manage for any one team, um, put that into a complicated subsystem team. That's it's funny because um, I don't know if you listened to the uh, podcast episode of Pragmatism in Practice with uh, Danilo and um, somebody I can't remember his name at the the from ITV um, talking about their data mesh implementation and Scott Hawkins when he was on talked about that they are having these kind of consultant teams in a box. And, and we had a community discussion about who should be your data product developers, right? Should it be these kind of these enabling teams that drop in and help create the data products because they're experts in extracting the context and, and actually wrapping that into and, and making it something that communi- can communicate the context of the domain externally in that, you know, embedded in that data product itself in the way that it's it's actually structured but then <laughs> are you kind of handing over maintenance of a tank to somebody who's who can kind of drive a stick shift car maybe <laughs> you know like it's just this this thing of or do you give it to the software engineers who have no real concept in most cases of like how to actually do data right or do you have a data engineer analytics engineer that's the main interface but then they become a single point of failure for that domain or they can become a single point of failure and so how how are you seeing that kind of exactly what you talked about of this manifestation on data product creation maybe how are you seeing that actually manifest in the uh, different data mesh implementations yeah yeah that's i mean i think this is a this is a really key question um, in in uh, how to build the capability in a in a decentralized world um, how to build those deep capabilities in a in a decentralized world and um, the, i think the, the like the pattern that we've been seeing here is you know, I, I did talk about facilitation around facilitation, and so this is one of the interaction patterns that, that team topologies define uh, facilitation in a in a functional speciality. But I think what we're seeing in the early days, at least, is more a, a different mode which team topologies defines, which is collaboration, uh, which is a much more intensive way of working around shared outcomes and shared learning and development. And what we're seeing is a, a bit more of a multidisciplinary enablement team um, that collaborates with stream-aligned teams uh, to help them uh, understand, uh, design, and, and deliver uh, their first data products. Uh, you know, it's, it's not, a, again, it's not a permanent permanent relationship, but it's a collaboration relationship, which means two-way sharing and real ownership of the, uh, the uh, solution that's developed collaboratively rather than, you know, as you say, handing over an alien artifact and expecting the team to be able to run with it. Um, but the, and, and the other benefit of that is that um, the, this uh, enabling team actually understands the right abstractions uh, for the stream-aligned teams. And so then this enabling team can bring that knowledge back to the platform team as well. And as a result, you know, yeah, you talked about uh, it can be too early to scale. It, it can definitely be too early to scale if you bake the wrong abstractions 
into the platform and then you know every product that that comes after that is is wrestling with an outdated view of the world uh, if the uh, if we can use that that enabling team to actually create a two-way flow of information and uh, provide um, requirements as it were back to the platform team about how uh, stream aligned product teams want to interface with the self-service data platform uh, then that can be a really effective mode as we're in that in that initial scaling stage, scaling and designing at the same time. I'm I'm actually hearing from a couple of people that their goal or their plans are to throw out each of their first ten data products within the first six months because it's it's about finding those repeatability patterns, right? It's about finding like exactly what you talked about that that platform team people think of platform as platform and it's like no it's not just the tech it's the everything it's that abstraction team and that's where it gets wrapped into the the governance as well that that central governance team their their role is to make it so that that you know one plus one plus one plus one equals greater than four right that they're the sum is greater than the whole and so they have to be tied in with the like the actual ways of working, the flows, like where are we seeing things that we can reuse and where are we putting it in front of the teams and going, don't reinvent the world, the wheel if you don't need to. But if you're going overseas, the wheel isn't really going to be very helpful to you. So, you know, I mean, maybe a water wheel might be, but, you know, you say you might have to reinvent the wheel literally because you're not doing a wheel, you're doing a water wheel. So like, it's it's an interesting concept. How are you seeing um, people really evolve with their um, with their data mesh implementations? Are, are you seeing that when people are focusing on because a lot of people, even when they do their proof of concept, they do a proof of concept around a data set, not around creating a data product, and definitely not around a data mesh. So, like, how are you seeing the ones that are being successful? You know, and hopefully all your clients are successful, but there are probably going to be ones that want to move in in directions that you don't love. But like, where are you seeing the the things where people are gaining momentum and keeping their momentum going forward? Yeah, yeah. I think um, the like yeah the observation um, around potentially throwing away the first ten data products is an interesting one uh, and kind of relates to. Uh, optimizing for learning in the in the early stages uh, of of a uh, data mesh delivery, and and he also kind of asks us, it forces us to sort of question what is it we're throwing away, um, because when it comes to reuse, uh, I, you know, and and evolution of the platform, uh, you know, we might get that might get that at multiple levels, uh, starting off with with ideas. Uh, and, and patterns or, or sensible defaults um, uh, through to uh, starter kits, templates, starter kits, even SDKs be, before we reach a, a sort of full self-service platform. So in terms of the like the platform uh, development, you know, that's a, that's a pattern that we're seeing, you know, um, understand that you won't be able to, to build everything from the outset, um, but understand that reuse comes in and, and efficiency from learning comes in many different forms. And so, you know, uh, uh, be prepared to deliberately manage through that, that cycle of uh, sensible defaults, uh, accelerators uh, through to full services. Uh, and in terms of, in terms of products, very much being able to take an iterative and, and customer led um, product delivery approach as well. And so, uh, yeah, that can lead, and that can that, that leads that naturally leads beyond just delivering a data set to actually considering the uh, considering what data products add above a data set, which is that they're created to serve a specific use case, a user driven goal. Um, that, you know, we bake SLOs into that product, um, and we care about ownership and governance uh, on an ongoing basis. It's funny because you you wrapped in a couple of other things that were going to be my next question anyway, <laughs> which is the concept of what is the genesis? What is the creating factor for a, a data product? When you and I were talking earlier, it's like, start with the business problem first. I, I have had some, I've talked with a number of organizations that are 
trying to get to a sharing first culture and they're not necessarily seeing a lot of consumption, you know, um, Bente Bush at NAV talked about, we're trying to train our, our data consumers that they actually want to consume data. You know, in most organizations, data consumers are like, yeah, give me as much as I can. But like, there, there are a lot that are focused on, I'm going to share information that will then be, I'm going to share a data product that shares a bunch of, of data from my domain. And then I'm going to, and that's my source aligned. And then I'm going to kind of have within my own domain an aggregate or it's like it's not consumer aligned, but it's consumer driven source aligned data product that is fed by these other ones where I've just got a repository of all the information. And a lot of times it's almost that that's, you know, just the mirror of the database. Mm, And so which is just a a terrible pattern, which we don't want to talk about. But um, but like how are you seeing that genesis and how, how are you seeing the positives and the negatives of, you know, starting from the domain wanting to share their context in the way that they think about it, which was kind of what Jamak talked about a little bit in the early days as to how she thought it would might start and evolve versus now what I'm hearing from everybody is start from an, an initial customer and focus on still being able to be reusable, but you have an initial like reason for this. You don't create a data product unless you have a freaking reason (laughs) where you have somebody who has, who you've worked with and that you've set your SLOs with and that you're like, there is a business value reason. So sorry, just threw a lot at you, but like, yes. (laughs) Yes. And and I think there is a lot in there and it, and it is a tricky balance um, between uh, yeah, creating a useful, a valuable representation of data at the source which reflects the facts of of the real world, uh, and it, the I think the key value there is the alignment of the operational and the analytic worlds in that regard, um, so that you know we're not creating a whole lot of data quality and stitching problems downstream um, because our operational and analytic worlds have diverged at some point. Um, but yeah, but. Just building those truthful represent, analytic representation, representations of of the world in a in a um, uh, in a domain that's somewhat independent is isn't going to deliver value to consumers um, by alone. So it's tre- the, the the balance then is to have consumers pull some subset, and usually it's a thinner slice of the overall. Um, you know, the, the whole data that resides within that domain. Usually it's a thinner slice of that data um, that services that services a particular business problem. And so, you know, we can, uh, you know, we can discover these opportunities with structured frameworks. You know, we can look at, you know, various ways that uh, improved decisioning can reduce cost or improve revenue through better marketing or improve customer experience or unlock new revenue streams by, uh, connecting different markets together with data. And so, you know, that can be a starting point. Uh, but often those ideas already exist uh, in the organisations we're working with. And so then it's a, uh, then it's a matter of why would a, a data product, uh, and, you know, in, at, the, at the extreme end, you could build a single data product uh, to support one of these use cases. Why would a data product or a data mesh um, support this, this uh, particular scenario or this range of scenarios? This this uh, area of the business that's looking to improve through through data driven decisioning, um, and so when you when you have that have that opportunity, then you can then you can trace that backwards through the uh, through the data products that might support that. And often it's uh, you know it's a fairly uh, fairly thin slice of the source data, which means that you reduce the effort to align the operational and the an- analytic space um, uh, at, in that domain, um, reduce the scope rather. Uh, so that that can again allow you to deliver value on a on a shorter cycle time through to the consumers, and and ultimately you want to measure that that consumption is happening, uh, because that's again that's the, the sort of key measure of success. Yeah, there's about 15 questions that I've got as, as follow ups <laughs> there, but um, so I'll, I'll give you two, and you you decide which one you want to go to. Choose your own adventure. As we call it in Australia, I think it's pick a path for you in the States. <laughs> um, yeah, because uh, we're, we're coming up on, on time. So I want to give you enough time to answer uh, whichever one you want to. So you talked about 
not letting the analytical and the operational diverge, right? We haven't figured out how to do that historically, right? The the a lot of what scares a lot of people that have been around and focused on the enterprise data warehouse space is well, you know, what happens if you don't get it right immediately? And it's like, and you have to evolve and we have to figure out how we have that conversation, but also how we do it so that we aren't disruptive to the uh, data consumers without care, right? We have to think about that. So that's that's one question is how do we think about that? How do we do that? Um, the other is you talked about the, the thin slice and I'm going to ask you, like kind of the Pandora's box question of, of data mesh, which is like how thin of a slice, right? You, you talked about like that. So the, the problem that I see with very, very small data products, right, in scope is that there's so dang many of them that your data discovery becomes incredibly difficult because if you've got 2000 data products on the mesh and you're looking at 45 of them, that might be the thing that answers your question. That's obviously a horrible, horrible situation to try and dig through all of those, learn all the context, especially if you don't have a good UX plane, right? A good experience plane where all the data products kind of feel the same. You have to understand the new experience for each data product that you're trying to figure out, is this the data product I want to use? So between those two questions of like, how thin of a slice do you want to do? And, you know, how do you want to balance that? You know, maybe there's a fitness function there. Or yeah. how do we evolve our analytical side to continue to share what's going on with our, or you know, our operational side? Um how do we actually learn how to do that? Because I haven't seen anybody talking about that. We've actually figured out how to do this at all. <laughs> Graceful evolution. Yeah, yeah. Look, two two great choices. Um, I might start with the second and come back quickly to the first if we if we have enough time. Um, the and and as you you know, I was going one of the answers I was going to give as you highlighted was around those fitness functions. So you know, is it actually possible to? consumer identify which which data product might be relevant to a thin slice in a in a mature and an existing mesh uh, in that um, uh, in, in I think we we proposed uh, one of the uh, fitness functions for a data product uh, would be yeah, ease of discovery and ease of evaluation um, and so you know that might be measured by uh, how quickly can you determine whether a data product is going to suit your use case or not so um, and uh, that, uh, that 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 would be a measure of how well uh, those those products in the in the mesh are advertising their affordances uh, for new use cases. Uh, but if you had to say create a new source data product to serve this use case, uh, then uh, it's the <clears throat> it, it, I mean the, yeah the, the, there's no simple answer to the unknown unknowns, uh, but. Uh, the the process of working in a multidisciplinary team that uh, can go end to end from the consumer's needs through to understanding the the source the source data that it, that exists in the organisation uh, allows you to you quickly iterate on what might be feasible uh, and to narrow down on on something that might be feasible. Uh, we uh, you know uh, working in, in in a in a particular scenario. Uh, you know, on a on a system that was quite a quite an enormous uh, monolithic system that, that handled a number of different interrelated business processes, we were able to narrow down fairly quickly in that mode to just a handful of tables uh, that were relevant uh, to a data product, and then you know target those um, target those for delivery uh, through to the consumer uh, in, in a very thin slice approach, um, and. To come back to the yeah, the question around unifying operational and, and analytics, um, you know, I, th I think the I mean, even even the operational view of the world uh, needs to handle errors and, and changing reality. So you know, transactions are reversed and and so on. Um, and it's and I think this this comes back maybe as well to understanding the consumer perspective, like how. How good does the analytic view of the world need to be? Um, we worked with a, 
an organisation in Australia that delivers uh, geospatial data, national national spatial data sets for a number of use cases. Um, and you know, this might uh, everything from routing emergency services through to training self-driving cars. And so those consumers have very different uh, needs for uh, the accuracy of, of their data versus the freshness of their data. So, uh, though, and you know, they're uh, able to tolerate um, more the more data quality issues or, or inconsistencies uh, if, if the data is fresher. In some instances, in other instances, they want to they want to make sure that you know that they've got the, the best representation of the world that, that we can produce with a lot of additional processing and, and time to time to resolve any inconsistencies. And so, I think like it, it's it's yeah it's it's uh, not uh, it's not necessarily a, a, an entire solution, but I think it's one way to think about it. Uh, that by designing it as a product with consideration for the user's needs and what will what what quality means in terms of fitness for purpose for their use case um, allows us to square that circle to a degree. Okay. Yeah, and and I think I mean it's a super deep topic that we haven't. I, I'm just not seeing how we do graceful evolution of what we share on the analytics to match the operational. I just haven't seen anything on like, how do we do that? How, you know, everyone's like, oh, versioning and all this. And it's like, well, how do you do versioning? People are like, well, you have to do data APIs. How do you do data APIs? Well, they're APIs, right? Like, like we kind of have to go and, and dig into each of those topics to get to like how we actually do this. So. Yeah, yeah. And it was a very surface level treatment. But I think, I think the consumer perspective is really important and um, answering, you know, what is quality and fit for purpose in my context? Yeah, Emily Gorsensky kind of mentioned the same thing. If like yeah. when you're talking about your SLOs, have a conversation. Don't assume that they need, you know, uh, you know, 100% accuracy, which doesn't exist, and that they need yes. it within milliseconds. And, the, and they said real time. Well, what they meant was they were sick of the 24 to 48 hour data warehouse cycle, but within four hours of it happening, totally fine. That's, yes. that, you know. <laughs> And I feel like we've come full circle back to fitness functions again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, this has been a, a great conversation. Um, if people want to follow up with you, where do you want them doing that? You know, LinkedIn, is that the best place? And, and, and specifically, what would you like people following up with you about if you've got a specific kind of topic? Uh, yeah, LinkedIn's a great place to find me um, or through the ThoughtWorks website. Um, you should be able to get in touch. Uh, I think... It, you know, these topics that we've uh, discussed today um, around aligning uh, organisations on what, what good looks like for data mesh and, and being able to track progress towards that and, you know, the, the intersection of the, the team architecture or topology uh, with the, the technical architecture of the data mesh. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your time today, Dave, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks a lot, Scott. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Dave Coles, who's the Director of Data and AI at ThoughtWorks Australia. If you'd like to get in touch with Dave to follow up on anything we discussed, you can find his contact information in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. 
As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Thank mm-hmm. you.